1: You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: Have major life expenses? Using a credit card can cost you an arm and a leg in interest and fees. Break up with bad credit card debt and check out a SoFi personal loan. With low fixed interest rates and absolutely no fees, a personal loan could be a great way to consolidate your hard-to-pay-off high-interest credit card debt. A SoFi personal loan can also be used for home improvement projects, weddings, travel, moving costs, emergency expenses, whatever life throws your way. With funding ranging from $5,000 to $100,000. With a single fixed monthly payment and no fees, a SoFi personal loan is simply a smarter way to pay compared to high-interest credit cards. View your rate in 60 seconds without affecting your credit score at sofi.com slash podcast. That's sofi.com slash podcast. And get your money right. Loans originated by SoFi Bank in A. Member FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. NMLS
1: 6968-96891. Welcome to the science of success. Introducing your
2: host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. Today's episode is a bit different than a normal episode of the Science of Success. We share the incredible real-life story of the epic quest to see how the world's most successful people launched their careers, including a wild journey of hacking the prices right meeting Bill Gates and Lady Gaga, and an epic five-year quest to study and learn from the world's top achievers. This is a topic I've dedicated my life to, and this fascinating discussion with our guest, Alex Benayan, shines some new light on one of the most important questions of our lives. What was the inflection point that set massively successful people's lives on a different trajectory? Do you need more time, time for work, time for thinking and reading, time for the people in your life, time to accomplish your goals. This was the number one problem our listeners outlined, and we created a new video guide that you can get completely for free when you sign up and join our email list. It's called How You Can Create Time for the Things That Really Matter in Life. You can get it completely for free. When you sign up and join the email list at successpodcast.com, you're also gonna get exclusive content that's only available to our email subscribers. We recently pre-released an episode and an interview to our email subscribers a week before it went live to our broader audience. And that had tremendous implications because there was a limited offer in there with only 50 available spots that got eaten up by the people who were on the email list first. With that same interview, we also offered an exclusive opportunity for people on our email list to engage one-on-one for over an hour with one of our guests in a live exclusive interview just for email subscribers. There's some amazing stuff that's available only to email subscribers that's only going on if you subscribe and sign up to the email list. You can do that by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're driving around right now, if you're out and about and you're on the go, you don't have time, just text the word smarter to the number 44222. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we showed you how to solve any problem in your life using a simple and no risk tool that you can start using right away. We dug into why you get stuck on problems and how we often deceive ourselves. We talked about why reasons are often a ruse and how they can become dangerous once they turn into excuses and much more with our previous guest, Dr. Bernard Roth. If you want to be able to solve any problem or challenge you encounter, listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with Alex. Please note, this episode contains profanity. Today, we have another awesome guest on the show, Alex Benayan. Alex is the best-selling author of The Third Door, which chronicles his five-year quest to track down the world's most successful people to uncover how they broke through and launched their careers. He's been named to Forbes 30 Under 30, Business Insider's Most Powerful People Under 30, been featured in major magazines, including Forbes, Fortune, Businessweek, Bloomberg, CNBC, and much more. Alex, welcome to the Science of Success.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Well, I'm really excited for this interview because my passion has been for years and years and years, this sort of the same passion that you have. And it's this idea of studying the world's top achievers and trying to figure out what was the inflection point or what was the change? What was the thing that set them off on a trajectory that was different from a sort of a normal person and you and I met in person at one point and we were kind of talking about this and the thing that I'm the most interested I read tons and tons of biographies of every you know Rockefeller Bill Gates all the you know Warren Buffett all these billionaires all these people who are really successful and the part that's the most interesting to me is always like the first 10 20 percent not when they're children but that the early beginnings of their career yeah and that part that's where my whole obsession. Yeah, and and I always get frustrated because the whole stories about what they're doing once they're super successful, that's not really interesting or compelling to me because I can't apply it. What I want to figure out is what was that breakthrough? What was that point? What was that change that they did when they were young that set them off on this different path? And you took that passion to a completely another level and and spent years of your life and and cra- I mean the stories are insane and we'll get into them in a second, but basically following this path that I've been fascinated with. And so that's why I had to have you on the show. And to start out, I'd love to figure out how that journey began for you.
3: It, first of all, that means a lot. And the fact that we have, you know, the same awkward obsession is going to make this really fun. You know, I've been doing, you know, the same thing you've been doing, you know, really for the past seven years, just really obsessing over studying success. And the journey started, you know, seven years ago, I was 18 years old. A freshman in college, and I was spending every day lying on my dorm room bed, staring up at the ceiling. I don't know if you've gone through the what do I want to do with my life crisis, but you know, if you have, you know it's this all-consuming thing that you know follows you everywhere you go. It's what you think about right before you go to bed. To understand why I'm going through this crisis, you have to understand that I'm the son of Jewish immigrants, which pretty much means I came out of the womb. My mom cradled me in her arms, and then she stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. And, you know, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween in third grade and thought I was cool. You know, that was my childhood growing up. I checked all the boxes in high school. I studied for the SATs. I took all the biology classes. I even went to pre-med summer camp. And by the time I got to college, I'm the pre-meds. But very quickly, I remember lying on my dorm room bed, looking at this towering stack of biology books. And feeling like they were sucking the life out of me. And at first I assumed, you know, I was just being lazy, but very quickly I began to wonder, maybe I'm not on my path. Maybe I'm on a path somebody placed me on and I'm just rolling down. So now, you know, not only do I not know what I want to do with my life, I have no idea how all the people I looked up to how they did it. You know, how did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software out of his dorm room when nobody knew his name? How did Steven Spielberg become the youngest studio director in Hollywood history? Without a single hit under his belt. You know, this is what they don't teach you in school. So I just assumed there had to be a book out there with the answer. So I'm going to the library and I'm just, you know, ripping through business books and biographies and self-help books, you know, the similar biographies you were just talking about. And I had a very similar frustration that you had, which is that all these biographies spent so much time talking about. You know, what Bill Gates' leadership style is like once he becomes a billionaire. But to me, I wanted to know when no one would take his calls, when no one would take his meetings, how did he find a way to break through? And it's not really about an age in someone's life. It's more about a stage. And, you know, after going through all these business books and biographies, I was left empty handed. And that's when my naive 18 year old thinking kicked in. And I thought, well, no one's going to write the book I'm dreaming of reading. Why not write it myself? You know, I thought it'd be super simple. I would just call up Bill Gates, interview him, interview everybody else. I thought it'd be done in a few months. That I assumed would be the easy part. The hard part I figured was getting the money to fund this journey. You know, I was buried in student loan debt. I was, you know, all out of bar mitzvah cash. So there had to be a way to make some quick money. So two nights before final exams, I'm in the library doing what everyone's doing in the library right before finals. I'm on Facebook. And, you know, I'm on Facebook and I see someone offering free tickets to The Price is Right. And, you know, I'm going to college at USC, so it's not too far from where the show is being filmed. And my first thought is, what if I go on the show and win some money to fund this dream? You know, not my brightest moment. Plus, I had a problem. I had never seen a full episode of the show before. Plus, I had finals in two days. You know, I told myself it's a dumb idea to not think about it. But I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments where an idea just keeps clawing itself back into your mind. You know, no matter how dumb it is and you tell yourself to stop thinking about it, this one idea just keeps clawing itself back and back into your mind. And to prove to myself it was a bad idea so I could get back to studying, I remember opening my spiral notebook. I'm sitting at this small round wooden table in the corner of the library. And I open up my spiral notebook and I write best and worst case scenarios. You know, I just start writing out the worst case scenarios, you know. Fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid, mom stops talking to me, you know, mom kills me. You know, there's like 20 cons. And the only pro was maybe, maybe win enough money to fund this stream. And it felt as if somebody had tied a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a direction. So that night I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I studied how to hack the prices right. And I went on the show the next day and executed this ridiculous strategy and ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat. And that's how I funded the book.
2: And the story of you hacking the show is hilarious. I mean, it was something about, I forget the exact details, but when you were rolled up, you're wearing a ridiculous outfit and costume, right?
3: Yeah. You know, I got there and during my all-nighter of research, you know, I'm on the 23rd O of Google by 4 a.m. And I... Find out that the price is right isn't exactly what it seems. You know, although it looks completely random, like, Alex, come on down, as if they pulled your name out of a hat. What I learned is there's a system to it. And like all things in life, although it looks like random luck, there's actually a system. And what I learned is there's a producer who interviews every single person in the audience right before the show begins. And then on top of that, there's an undercover producer planted in the audience who then confirm or denies the original producer selection. So there was, you know, I'm sure you've done very similar things where it looks like this completely random series of events. But if you do your research, if you actually do the homework, you realize there's a system and you can learn how it works.
2: And I want to hear a little bit more about this story because I think it not only is it a crazy story, but it gives a really good context to the broader journey that you went on. Tell me, I mean, from somebody who had never even seen a complete episode of The Price is Right How did you then go on to, as you put it, hack it and end up winning?
3: Well, when I got to the CBS studios where the show's filmed, the second I got there, I knew I had no idea who the undercover producer is, so I'm just assuming everyone is. So I'm, you know, dancing with old ladies, I'm flirting with custodians, I'm breakdancing and I don't know how to breakdance, and after about an hour of waiting outside the studio in line... I spotted the casting producer. And yeah, you know, I saw him from you know, fifty feet away, and I knew exactly who it was because during the night before I did all this research on him. I knew his name was Stan. I knew where he grew up. I knew where he went to school, and I knew he had a clipboard, but it's never in his hands. His assistant, who sits ten feet away from him, holds it. And if Stan likes you, he'll talk to you a bit more. And if he really likes you, he'll turn around and wink, and his assistant will put your name on the clipboard. So, if the Price is Right is a nightclub, Stan is the bouncer. And if you're not on his list, you're out. And before I knew it, he's standing right in front of me. And he, he's like, you know, what's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? And I'm like, hey, I'm Alex. I'm 18 years old. I'm a freshman in college. I'm studying pre-med. And he goes, oh, pre-med? You must spend a lot of time studying. How do you have time to watch The Price is Right? And I'm like, oh, is that where I am? You know, the joke just dies. You know, no laughter. And I can see his eyes are darting like he's about to move on to the next person so i had read in one of these you know self-help books that i read during my life crisis it said that personal you know contact personal touch accelerates a relationship so i had an idea i had to touch stan but you know i'm standing like 20 feet away from him behind this railing so i'm like stan come over here i want to make a handshake with you and he's like you know no no it's okay it's okay i'm like come on so very reluctantly comes over and i teach him how to pound it and blow it up and he's laughing and, you know, he wishes me good luck and starts to walk away. He doesn't turn around to his assistant. She doesn't write anything on the clipboard. And just like that, it's over. And I can remember really vividly the feeling of feeling like my whole dream was sort of walking right away from me, almost like sand slipping through my fingers. And the worst part is I knew I didn't I didn't even have a chance to really prove myself. So I don't know what got into me, but I felt this rumbling in the pit of my stomach. And I started yelling. At the top of my lungs, Stan, And you know, the whole audience shoots their head around, you know, they think I'm like having a seizure and Stan runs over and he's like, are you okay? Are you okay? What's going on? And I have no idea what I'm going to say. I just, you know, I'm looking at him and you have to understand Stan is, you know, typical Hollywood, red turtleneck, or, you know, he's wearing a black turtleneck with a red scarf and, you know, even though it's 70 degrees outside and I'm just looking at him and I'm like, your scarf. And now I really don't know what I'm going to say next. So I just, you know, look at him with all the seriousness I can. And, you know, you can feel the tension. And I'm just, I just look at him and I'm like, Stan, I'm an avid scarf collector. I have 362 pairs in my dorm room and I'm missing that one. Where did you get it? And he starts cracking up because I think he finally figured out what I was trying to do. And he was laughing more at why I was doing it. So, you know, he gives me the scarf. He's
4: like, look, you need this more than. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting.
3: and I do. You know, we joke around a bit more. He turns around, winks, and his assistant makes a mark on the clipboard. And you know, at that point the line moves on and I, you know, I think maybe like 20 minutes later, I notice this woman with long brown hair looking around at people's name tags a lot. You know, she's in the audience and she's looking around people's names. Actually keeps walking around. And then I look closer and I see a laminated badge sticking out of her back pocket, and I figure this has to be the undercover producer so i you know i like just come out of puberty at that point you know i'm blowing her kisses and she's laughing and then i start dancing and she's laughing even more she takes a sheet of paper out of her pocket looks at my name tag and makes a mark and at this point you would think i'm feeling on top of the world but it was right then that i realized i had spent my entire all nighter studying how to get on the show i still didn't know how to play But, you know, no big deal. I just, you know, took out my phone and I Googled how to play prices Right. And, you know, I'm reading up. But about 30 seconds later, I feel a tap on my shoulder and security takes my phone away. And at this point, you know, I have no plan B. And I remember, you know, sitting on this cold metal bench outside of the studio and I'm just sulking. And I'm sitting next to this old lady with white hair and she can notice something's wrong. So I ask her what the problem is. And I just start venting to her. You know, I tell her about finals, I tell her about premed. I tell her about this book. I tell her I've never seen a full episode of the show before, and she, you know, pinches my cheek and she's like, "Honey, you remind me of my grandson." And you know, I ask her if she has any advice. And she's like, "Sweetie, I've been watching the show for forty years." And decades of wisdom starts downloading into my head in a matter of minutes. And I have this idea, you know, I give her a big hug, I say, thank you. And then I turn to the person next to me and I'm like, hey, I'm Alex, I'm 18, I've never seen the show before, do you have any advice? And then I turn to another person, then a group of people, then another group of people. And over the course of an hour, I end end up crowdsourcing the wisdom of about half the audience. And right about then, the doors to the studio open. And, you know, the rest of the show unfolds and we can go into the story in more detail if you want later, but... It was, you know, less Einstein and more Forrest Gump the way the rest of the show unraveled. But I ended up winning the sailboat and selling it. And that prize money is how I funded this entire seven-year adventure.
2: So I'll save there's some other hilarious nuggets in that story. And actually one of my I mean literally laugh out loud moments in the rest of the Price is Right journey, but I'll save that for listeners who want to dig into the book. So you hack the prices right, you win this sailboat, you sell it. What's the next step in the journey to interview and, and study from the world's top achievers?
3: First of all, I, I sell the sailboat and I have all this cash for the first time in my life and you know I feel like a millionaire. So I'm going back to my college campus. I'm, you know, taking all my friends out to lunch to Chipotle. I'm like, you know, free guacamole for everybody. You know, I'm feeling really good. And now that I have the money, though, I realize, all right, it's time to start trying to get interviews. And that's when I realized I had another problem. I didn't really know exactly who I needed to interview because, you know, I knew I wanted to interview the world's most successful people, but I didn't know who was on that list, you know, and I don't really believe in these Forbes lists or these algorithms that, Quantify success. So I did what I always do when I have a problem. I called my best friends. And me and my best friends, you know, these are the boys who I grew up with. They all came over one night, you know, it's midnight, we're all in my room. And I just asked them if we could make our dream university, who would be our professors? And then it became really easy. You know, Bill Gates would teach business. Warren Buffett would teach finance. Spielberg would teach film. Maya Angelou would teach poetry. Jane Goodall would teach science. You know, in that list, you know, Larry King would teach broadcasting. Steve Wozniak would teach computer science. Mark Zuckerberg for tech. And it was really that list that became the treasure map for this journey going forward.
2: And so once you had the treasure map, and I want to make sure we have time to kind of dig into some of the lessons from this journey, too. So I want to I want to accelerate the journey a little bit. You, What happens once you kind of started down that path? And, you know, was it easy to kind of get access to these people and and interview them?
3: <laughs> like literally just thinking about the answer is like very preposterous because every single interview that came to be for the journey is its own, you know, ridiculous story. For Tim Ferris, I had to crouch in a bathroom for 30 minutes and like jump out when he was walking by. For, you know, one of the crazier stories, by far the most miraculous one happened about halfway through the journey. So I had just, you know, the context is I had just spent eight months on this quest to track down Warren Buffett and I ended up hacking his shareholders meeting. But, you know, you've read the book, so, you know, it ended as a sort of this gigantic disaster at the end that sort of backfired in my face. And I was really dejected. I went back to L.A. where I live and I just, you know, couldn't get out of bed for a week. And I was really down on myself. And, you know, again, my best friends are incredible. And one of my best friends, his name is Corwin, he wanted to cheer me up. And he's like, yo, let's, you know, let's go grab some lunch and talk. So we go to a grocery store and we're sitting on the sidewalk eating some sandwiches. And, you know, Corwin's trying to raise my spirits. And he's like, hey, man, you know, you just got to focus on the future. Do you have any other interviews lined up? And I'm like, dude, I have nothing. And he's like, come on, like, you know, let's say you did have an interview lined up. Like, who would you want to talk to? And I'm like, dude, even if I had an interview lined up, I would probably mess that up too, you know? And not only do I not have an interview lined up, I don't even know how to interview people. And he's like, dude, you got to stop being so hard on yourself. You know, interviewing is not a science, it's an art. And as we're talking about this, by far the most miraculous moment of this entire journey happens. A black car pulls up. It parks right in front of us. You know, it has tinted windows. The door swings open and out walks Larry King. And I don't know if you're the same way, but weirdly, whenever things line up perfectly for me, whenever like the stars align, that's actually when I get the most nervous. You know, that's when I'm paralyzed by by anxiety. And I, I look at Larry King and I just freeze and he walks right past me into the stores, you know, sliding glass windows, and I don't say a word. You know, my friend Corin is like, dude, what the fuck? Why did you say anything? And I, you know, I call the sensation the flinch, you know, when I become so nervous that I don't do anything. You know, the thing about the flinch is it's very good as, at disguising itself as logic, and I, you know, start giving these logical excuses to Corwin, like, oh, I don't want to be that guy. It's better to, you know, find an introduction. You know, I'm just giving all these excuses. And Corwin's like, dude, at least you can just go say hi. And then, you know, the excuses kept coming. I'm like, I don't know. He's in the grocery store. There's no way I'll be able to find him at this point. And Corwin's like, dude, he's 80 years old. How far could he get? So <laughs> very reluctantly, I stand up and I, you know, walk into this grocery store to look for Larry King and you know, I'm looking at the bakery section, you know, no Larry. I walk over to the produce section, you know, fruits, there's vegetables, there's no Larry. And right then, I remember that he had parked in the loading zone, which means he must be leaving any minute now. So this, you know, boost of adrenaline kicks in and I just start running through this grocery store. You know, I'm running down every aisle, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry. You know, I cut a corner, I'm now sprinting down the frozen food section, you know, I'm dodging cans of tuna, you know, no Larry. And I figure, you know, he has to be at the checkout counter. So I run over to the checkout counter, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry. And at this point, I want to kick myself because he had been right in front of me and I hadn't said a thing. And, you know, I walk out of this grocery store, I'm walking through this parking lot, I'm staring down at my feet, and I look up, and 20 feet in front of me is Larry King, suspenders and all. And, you know, similar to that moment with Stan, all this pent up energy and you know, baggage inside of me combusted and out of my mouth uncontrollably, I just, you know, yelled, you know, Mr. King! And the echo reverberated through the parking lot way louder than I expected. And the poor guy, you know, Larry King has had quadruple bypass surgery. I'll never forget, he, you know, pretty much jumps in the air and slowly turns his head around. Every wrinkle on his face sprung back as if he's looking at the Grim Reaper. And at this point, you know, I have no idea what to do. So I just start running after him and I'm like, Mr. King, Mr. King, my name's Alex. Um, you know, 19 years old. I've always wanted to say hi. And he's like, OK, hi. And he just starts you know, speeding off towards his car. And, you know, I'm too late in the game to pull back now. So I just I'm awkwardly following him to his car. And he's, you know, opening up the trunk, stuffing in his groceries. He opens up the driver door. He's about to climb inside. And I'm like, wait, Mr. King, can I go to breakfast with you? And he just looks at me like I'm this lunatic. But before he can answer, he looks out onto the sidewalk and sees about, you know, 10 people are watching this go down. And I think out of, you know, peer pressure almost, he just sort of shrugs his shoulders and he goes, Okay, 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 okay. And I'm like, oh my God, thank you, thank you so much. I'll see you tomorrow, I guess. And he's like, okay. And, you know, he gets in his car, shuts the door, and I'm like, wait, Mr. King, what time? And he just looks at me and he, like, you know, starts the engine. And I'm like, Mr. King, what time? And he, he looks at me again and he just puts the car in drive. I'm now standing in front of his car, flailing my arms in the air, shouting, you know, Mr. King, what time? And he looks at me and just goes, Nine o'clock and just speeds off. And you know the next morning it's nine o'clock, and I show up at his bagel restaurant. And you know there he is sitting in the corner booth with all of his best friends having breakfast. And there was actually an empty seat at the table. but I you know had a chance to reflect on how I had acted the day before. So I thought I'd be a little gentler. So I like walk up to the table and I'm like, hey, good morning, Mr. King. And he looks at me and just, you know, mumbles under his breath. He's like, you know, I don't really get a response. So I figure he probably just (laughs) wants some alone time with his friends and I'll sit at the table next to him and wait for him to call me over. So I sit at the table next to him and I, you know, I'm waiting 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour passes. And finally, Larry King stands up and he starts walking toward me. And then he walks right past me and heads for the exit. And, you know, I put a hand up in the air and I'm like, Mr. Mr. King? And he's like, what is it, kid? What do you want? And at that point, I felt this, you know, very sharp, familiar pain in my chest. And I just looked at him and I was like, honestly, I just wanted some advice on how to interview people. And this slow smile spread across his face, almost as if to say, well, why didn't you say so? And he ends up putting a hand on my shoulder and giving me one of the best monologues of interview advice. And then he checks his watch. And then he looks up at the ceiling as if he's debating something in his mind. And he looks back at me and he goes, all right, kid, tomorrow, 8.45, see you here. And you know, I show up the next morning at 8.45. He calls me over to his table. He asks me you know, why I even want to learn how to interview people. I tell him about the book and he's like, okay, I'm in. And over the course of the past five years, I've been to breakfast with him over fifty times.
2: The crazy thing about that story is that it's just one of, as you said, maybe a dozen or more similarly absurd and ridiculous things that happened on this on this kind of real life epic quest to interview some of the world's top achievers to you know I, I want to get into some of the meat of some of the lessons that you learned from this. and so Fast-forwarding all the way to the end, just to give the audience a sense of the the scope and the breadth of some of these people that you, that you interviewed and connected with over the course of writing the book, tell me sort of who you ultimately ended up talking to.
3: So, you know, thankfully, a lot of the people on that original list ended up saying yes, but it took, you know, it took two years to track down Bill Gates. It took three years to track down Lady Gaga, you know, whether it's Maya Angelou or Jessica Alba or Quincy Jones or Steve Wozniak pitbull you know quincy jones it's really been this unbelievable journey and i couldn't be more grateful for them really because you know the truth is you know i'm not cnn i'm not the new york times I was this 18-year-old kid. So I'm very well aware that they weren't doing this interview because it was serving them or that it was going to help them in any way. They were really helping with this mission. And I believe that if all these people come together, not for press, not to promote anything, but really just to share their best wisdom with the next generation, people can do so much more. And you know, I couldn't be more grateful they all came on board. And
2: obviously, in the book, you get a lot more detailed into all the specific lessons and strategies from from each of these individuals. I want to come back to the meta question that we began the conversation with, which is this, this notion that w- once you interviewed all these incredible achievers across a huge spectrum, what were some of the – well, let's just start with the main question that I have. What was the inflection point? What was the big change? What was the big shift? What did you see that, that was the common thread between all of their journeys and what set them apart from a normal everyday person's trajectory?
3: So the big, you know, when I had started this journey, there was no part of me that wanted to find that, you know, one key to success. You know, we've seen those TED Talks, we've seen those business books, and normally I just roll my eyes. But what ended up happening after you know the seven years of interviews and you know thousands and thousands of hours of research and going through hundreds of biographies is they started realizing I don't know you know if you're a music fan but there was almost this common melody to every single interview I did and you know the analogy that came to me because I was 21 at the time is that every single one of these people treats life and business and success the exact same way. They treat it the exact same way. And it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. There's the first door, the main entrance, where the line curves around the block, where 99% of people wait in line hoping to get in. That's the first door. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and celebrities go through. And school and society have this way of making us feel like those are the only two ways in. You either wait your turn or you're born into it. But what I've learned is that there's always, always the third door. It's the entrance where you have to jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack over the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in. And it doesn't matter if that's how Bill Gates sold his first piece of software or how Lady Gaga got her first record deal. They all took the third door.
2: And that was one of the most interesting takeaways that I had from the book was was this notion that There's a different path that may not be what most people's perception of of success is. And as you said, most people think about it's either I like that analogy, waiting your turn or being born with it. There's another path, there's another journey. And the funny thing about the book is that you essentially take that third door to achieving all the interviews that you had with all these individuals.
3: (laughs) Yeah, by accident. What I've learned is that, you know, if you if you have a dream, you know, it doesn't matter if it's starting your own business if it's growing your existing business if it's getting a big promotion if it's you know creating a book or a work of art that you've always you know imagined of creating there is no other option but the third door there's no other option and The reason I've come to learn this is that there will always be a point. You know, one of the big, big things that I realized about this journey is that a universal struggle and conflict. You know, the reason most people end up not achieving a dream is not because the dream is unachievable, it's because of their fear of going after it. And when I had started working on the book, I was consumed by fear, not just in the beginning, you know, the whole way through. I'm, you know, if you ask any of my cousins who I grew up with, I was like the most scared kid you would ever meet. You know, I had a nightlight on, I was terrified of roller coasters, you know, I was not a brave kid. And I remember when I was starting out doing this research, one of my obsessions was trying to figure out how all of these people became so fearless. Because I just assumed, you know, Bill Gates and Elon Musk, they had to be fearless or else how could they have done what they did? And what I learned during my research and when I would end up interviewing them is I started realizing every single one of these people was not only not fearless, they were completely terrified the whole way through. And that was the exact opposite of what I assumed. And what I learned is that while it wasn't fearlessness they achieved, instead it was courage. And while the words sound similar, the difference is critical. Fearlessness is jumping off of a cliff and not thinking about it. You know, that's idiotic. Courage, on the other hand, is acknowledging your fears, analyzing the consequences, and then deciding that you care so much about it, you're still going to take one thoughtful step forward anyway.
2: I think that's a great way to put it. And even that that phrasing that you just used, take one step forward. One of the other takeaways that I had from reading the book that I thought was fascinating was this idea that all of these successful people, there there wasn't a single moment or tipping point that changed the entire trajectory of their lives, but it was rather one step at a time. Right. That it's
3: such a you know it's such an alluring idea though. <laughs> like, as someone who, you know, is obsessed over success, I'm sure you have too. There's. There's this allure of like, it's almost like the holy grail, you know, the tipping point. It's this like very magical concept.
2: Exactly, And, you know, we, we actually recently had an interview uh, with, with a gentleman named Bo Lotto, and he talked about this from a creative standpoint, the idea that creativity is sort of one step at a time into a place from knowing to not knowing into a place of doubt and uncertainty and that creative leaps that from the outside look impossible or, or unachievable to the person making that creative leap, it's just the next step in the journey that they've been traversing. And it seems like right. your, your, 100%. your research uncovered essentially the same conclusion about the success of Bill Gates and Lady Gaga and Steven Spielberg and all these incredible people that you came across in your journey.
3: Yeah. You know, what I've learned is that when you're looking in hindsight, only then can you see a tipping point. You know, if you're looking back on Bill Gates's career from a, you know, 50 year vantage point, You're zooming out and you can see all 50 years. Yeah, you can say, all right, the IBM deal he made in Boca Raton um, was critical to the eventual success of Microsoft. Now, when you're Bill and you're 20 years old and you're going into that meeting with IBM and they're telling you to go fuck off, it sure doesn't feel like a tipping point. (laughs) And then when you get the deal and it's about to fall apart because you can't finish it on time and your employee wants to quit, and your server crashes, you know, it sure doesn't feel like a tipping point. So what I've learned is that when you're in the trenches, when you're an entrepreneur, when you're building a dream, there is no tipping point. It's all just little steps.
2: I'm a huge fan of anything that helps you be more high leverage, and that's why I'm excited about Works our sponsor for this episode. JustWorks makes it easier for you to start, run, and grow a business. Let me tell you how JustWorks can help your business. With JustWorks, employees can onboard themselves in minutes with simple software that makes a great first impression. You can give them access to national, large group health insurance plans, and handle payroll and PTO requests all in one platform. Plus, it comes with expert 24-7 support for you and your team, JustWorks makes it simple to hire and manage remote employees across all 50 states. They let you onboard new employees with ease. They have an intuitive online platform, take all the guesswork out of employment and tax regulation requirements. You get access to national health insurance plans. You can set up sick leave and policies for harassment and discrimination prevention to comply with state and local requirements, save hours on tracking that syncs with your payroll. and. You get 24-7 expert support from their certified HR consultants. You can find out how JustWorks can help your business by going to JustWorks.com. That's JustWorks.com for more info. Check it out today. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. If you're listening to this show, then you're probably like me and you care a lot about your brain and your mental health. There's plenty of ways to support brain health, like learning a new language, taking power naps, listening to this show. But there's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. One of the big reasons I started the science of success in the first place was to help myself deal with stress. And I know how helpful therapy can be in dealing with life's many stresses. I'm a huge believer in using tools like therapy to help improve your mental health, which is why I'm so thrilled that BetterHelp is once again sponsoring our show. BetterHelp is an online therapy platform that offers video, phone, and even chat-only therapy support. You don't have to be on camera if you don't want to. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. You can also get matched with a therapist in less than 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com S-O-S. That's betterhelp.com slash S-O-S. Betterhelp.com S-O-S. Be sure to check them out. She's got your nose
4: and your dimples. She's got your sense of adventure. She's also got your car. We're all growing something. And Farm Bureau Insurance of Tennessee can help you protect it. Get a quote at FBITN.com.
2: Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. There's another idea that that came out of the book that I thought was really fascinating. And it was the notion of building a pipeline. And without going super in detail, I'd love to talk about or maybe just touch on briefly how you met Elliot and how he sort of shaped that journey and, and taught you that lesson as well.
3: Well, you know, the book on the outside is really this book about, you know, tracking down the world's most successful people and uncovering how they launched their careers, but there's also all these you know layers of themes and one of the biggest themes is you know how critical mentorship is to achieving a dream and by far the biggest mentor i met happened about a year into this journey you know this is the mentor that changed the course of this book and it's a year in i've been working on the book nonstop i'm still in college and finally, after a year, I was, you know, to me, Bill Gates was my holy grail interview. That was the mountaintop. And about a year in, I get a call from Bill Gates' his chief of staff. You know, it took me a whole year to make this happen, but I finally am on the phone with Bill Gates' right hand guy. And, you know, I'm standing in a CVS parking lot eating like an ice cream cone. I'm 19. And he's like, you know, so you want to interview Bill, huh? And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's my biggest dream. And you know, I'm telling you all of the book. he's like, look, I love what you're doing. I love that you're doing this to help with, you know, help your generation. And I feel like I'm 95% there. And he's like, you know, but the thing is, you're only about 5% there. <laughs> and, you know, I'm like crashing down to the ground. And he goes up to explain to me that, look, even when Malcolm Gladwell wanted to interview Bill Gates for outliers, you know, it wasn't an obvious yes. And, you know, Bill Gates, the chief of staff, is telling me, I need to go build more momentum. And I need to go get a publishing deal with either Penguin or Random House and to call him back when that's done. And I remember just standing in the parking lot after he hung up and just, you know, two words were echoing in my head, you know, 5%. And I remember going back to my room with, you know, my head in my hands, wanting to pull out my hair because if I'm on the phone with Bill Gates, chief of staff, and I'm only 5% there, then I have to – I must be at, you know, negative – 50% with people like Bill Clinton or Richard Branson. And I end up having this thought like sort of flash through my mind, you know, this random almost like itch in my head. And I remember someone once told me about Richard Branson and Bill Clinton speaking on a cruise ship once. So almost to procrastinate, I take on my laptop and I Google, you know, Richard Branson cruise ship. And this article pops up, you know, it's on fastcompany.com. And the headline says, Summit Series takes the high seas, and you know I start reading this article, and it's talking about how you know Richard Branson is the keynote speaker, and there's Tim Ferriss, and Gary Vaynerchuk, and you know Blake Mycoskie and Russell Simmons, and you know The Roots are the house band, and it's all happening on this cruise ship in the Caribbean, and I'm like salivating, you know, and this is like my book in cruise ship form, and I'm reading and I'm reading and I'm reading, and finally at the end of the article it says, you know, Summit Series was founded by serial entrepreneur Elliot Bisno 26 years old and I was like what the fuck you know my cousin's 26 years old i didn't think you know you could do that at this age and i end up googling elliot bisno and i go down a you know another google rabbit hole where hours start passing by without me noticing i'm just reading everything i can you know i i'm skipping meals without noticing and, you know, reading about Elliot online was sort of like reading about the guy from Catch Me If You Can, where there's a lot of stuff about him on the Internet, but nothing that actually said who he was and what he did. But, you know, by the end of that night, I remember feeling this very overwhelming sensation of, on the one hand, I can't wrap my hands around this guy. But on the other hand, I felt like that if, if there was anyone on Earth who could teach me how to build momentum – And who could teach me what i have to do to get to bill gates it had to be this guy elliot bisno and i remember you know closing my eyes and when i opened them i took out my journal and i opened to a fresh page and i wrote dream mentors across the top and i underlined it and on the first line i wrote elliot bisno and a couple weeks later i'm in the library studying for an accounting exam you know it was finals again it was time for an accounting final and I couldn't get this Elliot guy out of my head, and I needed to focus on studying. So I was like, all right, I'll just spend 10 minutes writing Elliot a cold email, and then I'll go back to studying. And I had interviewed Tim Ferriss a bit earlier, so Tim Ferriss gave me his cold email template. So I used this you know, secret Tim Ferriss cold email template, and I email Elliot Bisno. But of course, it takes me three hours to really perfect this email and edit it down And I end up sending it off to Elliot. I can't even find his email address online. So I end up having to guess what it is. And an hour later, I get a reply. Great email. What are you doing on Thursday? And I look at my calendar. And on Thursday, it says accounting final exam. So I reply back to Elliot. The only thing I can, I go, I'm completely free. You know, what do you have in mind? And he goes, great. I'll meet you at 8 a.m. on Thursday, in Long Beach at the Westin Hotel, and he's like, read this book before we meet. And I'm thinking, all right, my final isn't until 12 in the afternoon, the meeting's at 8 a.m., it's probably gonna go 15 minutes, I'll still make it back in time for finals. I read the whole book Ellie told me to read, and I show up for this meeting at 8 a.m., but our 15-minute meeting turns into four hours. I end up missing my final, but I end up spending that entire summer traveling with Elliot around the world, And he not only became my mentor, he's still my best friend to this day.
2: And there are so many interesting lessons from from your relationship with Elliot. I mean, there's so many takeaways that I want to pull out of this. And, and you know, one of the lessons that you had from Elliot and, and one of the ideas that he shared was this notion that adventures only happen to the adventurous. And I want to talk about that. But before we dig into that, let's come back to this idea of pipelines, because that was one of the biggest takeaways that I, I took away from the book. And, and I think that Elliot taught you as well.
3: Right. I learned this the hard way because, you know, I had mentioned briefly earlier, I went on this eight month quest to track down Warren Buffett, where the only thing I did for eight months was trying to get an interview with Warren Buffett. And Elliot was just, you know, yelling at me, you know, he's like, you idiot, you know, you have to build this pipeline. And what Elliot was trying to explain to me is that you're naturally going to get what he calls, you know, bullshit nose. Where, you know, you ask someone, let's say, for an interview and they're like, oh, I would love to. I'm just really busy right now. Thank you so much. You know, that's a bullshit no. That's not the real – it's not just that they're busy. You know, everyone's busy. But if Oprah calls and says I want to interview tomorrow, you know, all of a sudden you become free. So Elliot's like, you know, they're called bullshit no's and Elliot's like, look, I get a thousand of them a week. He said the key to dealing with bullshit no's is you'll never be able to logically argue a bullshit no because you don't actually know the real reason. You know, you need to do, you know, a couple things. He gave me like three things. The first one is like you have to build a pipeline. If you have... 30 people that you're working on, if you get a bullshit no from one, you still have 29 more to work on. And it frees you up from being desperate because desperation clogs intuition. So that's the first one, you know, building a pipeline. The second one, he said, you know, you have to think bigger. You know, if you're offering someone, the reason they're probably saying no is because what you're offering them isn't big enough. It's not exciting enough. You know, it's not commanding attention. And the third thing is, it's like, you know, you're not thinking, you know, he's like, you have to think different where you're asking for, you know, these down the middle requests, you know, can I sit down in your office for 60 minutes, you know, so these very down the middle things, but he's like, look, if you, you know, with Warren Buffett, I ended up asking my questions to him during his shareholders meeting with Larry King, I ended up, you know, having breakfast with him with Steve Wozniak, we had lunch outside Apple headquarters. So he's like, you need to start thinking more differently. So those are the things that Elliot did that started changing Me from just being hounded with no's to starting to slowly get some more yeses.
2: And I think a pipeline is something that a lot of people don't think about when they envision marching towards their goals. And it's something that's been really helpful for for our show as well, is having people, you know, not every guest says yes to us. And there's lots and lots of no's that we've gotten, but it's not about the people who say no, it's about the people who say yes.
3: Right. A hundred percent.
2: The other fascinating lesson that was, I think, one of Elliot's catchphrases was "adventures only happen to the adventurous." Tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> he he and, has and a lot of good catchphrases. I, I, he does. He does, and they're they're littered throughout the book. And I mean, I know it involves at some point or another last-minute flights around the world and all kinds of crazy stuff that you that you go a lot more detail into in the book. But I, I just thought that was a great phrase.
3: I think, you know, it's not only a phrase, it's a way of life where, you know, you know, Elliot's phrase of adventures only happen to the adventurous is, you know, it's not just literally about, you know, jumping on airplanes and stuff like that. It's really about just saying yes. When you're scared, when things don't make sense, when an opportunity is in front of you, you have to jump, you know, every so often you'll be lucky enough if the, You know, the stars align 80%. And I think what Elliot is really trying to say is that everyone tries to over-optimize and wait for things to be perfect until they're 100% lined up. And, you know, really what his life motto is, it's never going to 100% line up. If it's 80% there, it's up to you to jump and close that gap. And that's what adventures only happen to the adventurous means. If someone says, hey, you know, it was great meeting you. Let me know the next time you're in LA saying, "I'll, I'll be there next week. And even if you don't have money, you know, you're selling your laptop so you can buy a Greyhound bus ticket to go across the country like that's adventures only happen to the adventurous.
2: And that ethos underscores the whole narrative throughout the book, including, you know, one of the last themes I'd love to touch on is is this combination of the power of boldness and not being afraid to ask for something and this this notion of the mindset of possibility. Tell me about those.
3: You know, one of the best, talking about like great quotable catchphrases, one of them came from the founder of TED. And he said something that I'll, I'll never forget. He like looked me in the eyes and he goes, he's like, I live my life by two mantras. Number one, if you don't ask, you don't get. Number two, most things don't work out. I think that's like the perfect balance of life mantras. Number one, if you don't ask, you don't get. And number two, most things don't work out. So I love that. And really, you know, like you said, all of these, you know, if you look at any one of these individual stories in the book, you know, if you look at how Spielberg launched his career, if you look at, you know, it doesn't matter who you're looking at, there might be different stories and different lessons, you know, the Bill Gates chapter is Bill Gates is negotiating secrets. But when you pull back, you know, when you get to the end of this journey, and you can sort of look at it in hindsight. I started realizing that the soul of this book goes much deeper, and it's really about possibility. What I've learned is that you can give someone all the best tools and tactics in the world. And for some reason their life still feels stuck. But if you change what someone believes is possible, they'll never be the same.
2: That's a great way to look at it. And, and that idea has shaped my life in many, many ways. And sometimes you have this, this shift in the way that you perceive the world and it suddenly opens a tremendous amount of opportunities.
4: Yeah.
3: And you know, I I'm all for optimizing and using you know, research and data to figure out, you know, how to make sure you achieve your goals. But that's like the frosting on the cake. And I think sometimes it doesn't work unless you have that foundation of a mindset of possibility, because you can have all the hacks in the world at your disposal. But if you don't actually believe it's possible, you'll never try
2: and that in many ways wraps together a lot of the themes you you write about in the book and go in much more detail and contextualize with amazing and hilarious and, and absurd stories, some of which you touched on and some and many of which there's there's tons more that are that we haven't even scratched the surface of and or we're gonna run out of time and won't be able to. But this idea that taking the third door, that there's another path out there if you can see it, if you can conceive of it, if you can believe in it, if you can be bold enough, adventurous enough as you put it courageous enough, there's a huge amount of magic and opportunity out there in the world, but you have to, you have to take that step. You have to take that action. You have to, you have to be somebody who, who executes.
3: 100%. Yeah. I couldn't agree more.
2: So for listeners who want to execute, who want to take action, who want to concretely implement some of these ideas and themes into their lives, what would be one piece of homework that you would give them as an action item to take action and and implement some of these themes that we've talked about today?
3: So, you know, it sort of depends on what stage you are in your journey. You know, I have, you know, different action items that I always recommend people if they're in the middle of their grind and trudging through the mud. A lot of people who I've been meeting on the book tour are people who some people are just starting out with their career, Some people are late in their careers in their 50s and 60s and they're trying to find their next big jump. You know, let's say you're in that ladder group where you're, you know, you're looking for that passion. You're looking for your path, something that makes you jump out of bed every day. You know, here's something very concrete that you can start doing today that will change your life forever. And it sounds super simple. But the results are unbelievable. It just—it sounds so simple that it—it's almost hard to believe that it'll even make a difference. But it is shocking, and it's called the 30 Day Challenge. And this is how it works. You know, if you want to do this, go buy—go today to go to like a pharmacy and buy a one dollar, you know, spiral notebook, a really just simple spiral notebook, and write 30 Day Challenge on the front. And it's really important that this is a fresh spiral notebook. It doesn't have any other writing in it. So you write 30 day challenge on the front and every day for the next 30 days, you have to journal about the same three questions. And it's super important that these are 30 consecutive days. You're not doing 30 days spread out over a few months, you know, over a year, you're doing 30 days in a row and you have to choose one time of the day, whether it's morning or night where you will consistently do this. And these are the three questions you have to journal about. Number one, What excited me today? You know, what excited me today? What filled me with enthusiasm? What excited me today? That's the first one. The second one is what drained me of energy today? What drained me of energy today? And the third one is what did I learn about myself today? If you journal on these three things, you know, the first few days will be sort of fun. But by day 10, 12 You're going to start really hating this exercise. It's going to start feeling really boring and really repetitive, and you're not going to think it's going anywhere, and you're going to want to stop. By day 20, it's going to start getting a little interesting again. By day 28, 29, and 30 is when the magic happens, because then you can start seeing the pattern over 30 days. And I highly, highly recommend anyone who's looking for their path, looking to find their enthusiasm, looking to find their passion, looking for the next step to feel more alive to go after their life's work, the 30-day challenge helps more than I can say.
2: That was great. Extremely practical and applicable. And for listeners who want to find out more about you, who want to find The Third Door, where can they find you and the book online?
3: So the book is, you know, everywhere you like to buy books. So whether it's Amazon or Barnes & Noble, Kindle, audio books, you know, I, I recorded the audiobook myself, so it was a ton of fun. So it's on Audible and iTunes And if you end up getting the book because you heard it on the podcast, definitely say hi to me on social so I can say thank you. My handle is at Alex Banayan, So A-L-E-X-B-A-N-A-Y-A-N. And I would love, love, love to say hi.
2: Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing your story, some of your stories and all this wisdom. You know, I can say I've I've read the book and it was a fascinating journey. Incredible stories. You'll laugh. You'll cry. But it reminded me of when I read it the first time that I read the Four Hour Work Week, and it had that kind of energy, that vibe, that more than anything opens a space of possibility and and makes you think about all the exciting, cool, and fun and
3: unknown things that are out there. Thank you so much, man. That means more than I could say.
2: Thank you so much for listening to the Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email.
4: Horizon Block Party is on. It's a free front-row ticket to amazing VR experiences all summer long. Only in Horizon Worlds on MetaQuest 2. Post Malone kicks things off with a special VR performance of 12-carat toothache, followed by more of your favorite music, comedy, and sports. Strap on your MetaQuest 2. Download the free Horizon Worlds app and join the party. Follow us on Instagram at Horizon Worlds to learn more.
2: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader.